All right, well, thank you, Pastor Blake, for that kind introduction and a very warm welcome to you all, church family and guests. Oh, man, it is a sweet thing to get to sing with you tonight and just now to get to hear from Phil. Phil is a dear friend of mine and an excellent servant in our high school ministry. And so you can be praying for Phil this next school year as he shepherds our freshman boys alongside Cal Muxlow in our resolved high school ministry. Well, as has been said already, if you don't know me, then my name is James Prendergast and I have the incredible joy of serving the incredible students here at Grace Church as the director of student ministries and have been doing that for almost three years now. And so my heart is so full. I love this church. Know that if you are a part of this church, my wife and I love you. Uh, We're so thankful for you. If you're a guest visiting with us tonight, man, we are so excited you're here. Uh, We have been praying for you and asking that the Lord would bring you to this place so that together we might see Christ. Really, that's the goal here tonight. It's not about me. It's not about anybody else on this stage. It's about seeing Christ through the songs that are sung, through the word that is preached, and even through the fellowship that is enjoyed. And so speaking of preaching, I am a preacher and this preacher cannot wait any longer to get into the text. And so if you do have a Bible, please grab that Bible and turn with me to Luke 17. Luke chapter 17. And tonight we're going to be camping out in verses 11 through 19 as we close our summer series by looking past the miracles of Jesus and ultimately asking ourselves the question, what these miracles tell us about the man, Jesus. If you don't have a Bible on hand tonight, just as Blake said, we've got one for you under every other seat. Please grab that coffee and be sure to meet us in the Gospel of Luke. And as you do so, I want to give you our big idea tonight. That's what I call it with our high school students. It's just a one-sentence summary uh, that's going to sit over top our time in God's Word. And so if you forget everything that was said tonight, but jot down this big idea, I believe it will get you at least close to the Lord's intended meaning for this passage. And so the big idea tonight goes like this. In order to be saved by Jesus... You must, and here's our key word, come to Jesus for Jesus. Let me say that one more time. In order to be saved by Jesus, you must come to Jesus for Jesus. Would you pray with me as we commit our time tonight to the Lord? Let's pray together. Father, we are humbled tonight to be really before you as we sit before your word. Lord, it is a good and glorious thing to be in the hearing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other message, there is no other gospel, there is no other news given among men by which we must be saved but your gospel. And so, Lord, open up the eyes of our hearts, give us great wisdom, or help us to be in tune to what you have to say to us tonight, even in this story that lives on, having even been lived 2,000 years ago. And so, Lord, we love you. We commit our time to you tonight. We pray all that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 
In order to be saved by Jesus, you must come to Jesus for Jesus. That is our big idea, and in an effort to explore that truth, and Lord willing, see that for ourselves in the text, I'd like to move us through this passage by looking at the story in three sequential events. And those events go like this. First, there's an unlikely encounter. Secondly, there's an unlikely healing. And then thirdly, there's an unlikely response. All right, so an unlikely encounter, an unlikely healing, an unlikely response. We begin first with the unlikely encounter in verses 11 through 13. Let's read that together. On the way to Jerusalem, he, and that he there is in reference to Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village. Now let's just go ahead and pause right there. Well, here in verses 11 and 12, what Luke is doing, uh, being the good and careful historian that he is, is setting the scene by which Jesus will perform this miracle. And apparently, as we've just been told, where this miracle will take place is in an unnamed, unknown village with no other descriptors except that it's sandwiched somewhere between Samaria and Galilee. A village which, according to verse 11, Jesus had every intention of passing through. This then begs the question, well, where was Jesus going? And the beginning of verse 11 answers that question. He was going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now, why was Jesus going to Jerusalem? Well, the end of Luke's gospel makes that explicitly clear. Jesus was going to Jerusalem to die. He was going to Jerusalem to fulfill his role as God's suffering servant, as him who would be crushed for our transgressions so that by his wounds we might be healed. Friends, Jesus was going to Jerusalem on a rescue mission. He was going to Jerusalem to crush the head of the serpent as he bore the sins of his people. And yet, yet despite both the importance and the urgency of Jesus' mission, uh, nevertheless, here in Luke 17, we are once again reintroduced uh, to one of Jesus' most consistent qualities. And what is that? Well, it's his interruptibility. You see, no matter how frantic Jesus' life might have appeared, no matter how in demand his ministry may have been, regardless, Jesus was never too busy for those around him, and such is the case here. As here in the 17th chapter of Luke, Jesus will once again be interrupted, this time by the most unlikely of groups. Let's keep reading. It says in verse 12 that as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers, 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. This is an unlikely encounter. Here we have Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the creator and sustainer of the entire cosmos, and ten lepers. 
the outcasts of society. Now, in order for us to be drawn into all of the drama and all of the wonder that exists within this story, I believe it's helpful for us to either refresh or learn something of the ancient disease of leprosy. And so let's first start with what this disease was. Simply put, leprosy, or what we now know as Hansen's disease, was an incredibly serious bacterial skin infection which attacked both the nerves and the mucous membrane. And what that meant is that upon contracting this disease, here's what would begin to happen. Initially, you would see discolored spots forming all over your body, hence the name leprosy, but that was just the beginning. Because from there, things would only get worse and worse and worse. And there's much that could be said, but just in brief, fingers and toes would retract back into the body. The nerves would slowly die, causing a constant state of numbness and pain. And the disfigurement that was once able to be covered up was now visible to all. Church, this disease was horrific. It was awful, it was cruel. One might even say it was miserable, and it was. It was, but friends, make no, make no mistake about it. If you and I were to jump in the flex capacitor tonight and go back 2,000 years to a first century leper colony, more than anything, what we would hear them lament was not first the physical suffering, but rather the complete social shunning, because that's what this disease meant. You see, to be a leper was not simply to be physically afflicted. No, it was that plus to be socially and religiously thrown out. Why? Well, because lepers were a threat, right? Because to let a leper carrying around this this death sentence roam your city or your town or your village was to endanger everyone else in the process. And so what do you do with lepers? Well, according to Leviticus 13.46... You tell them that they are unclean and that for as long as they live, they are to dwell outside the camp. Translation, as far from society as possible. And guys, this is why as you read your Bible, so many Jews lived in perpetual fear of this disease because to be leprous was to lose everything you loved. I mean, think about this with me, like sit in the reality of this, no family, no friends, no job, no purpose, and worst of all, no synagogue, and therefore an estranged relationship, not only with man, but with God. And it's in light of all of that that helps us understand something of the way these 10 relate to Jesus, and how do they do so? Well, in verses 12 and 13, it said, That upon seeing Christ, they stand at a distance and lift up their voices. They stand at a distance, uh, of course, in observance of God's social distancing order as given in the law. And they lift up their voices in hope of rescue, right? And we can almost picture the scene and, and even the scandal of the scene as Jesus passes through this village, no doubt accompanied by all the fanfare and all the crowds and all the eager onlookers, and there at the very same time stand the lepers. The lepers who, who really in disregard of their shame, in disregard of their social image, see Jesus and they begin crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. 
And of course, their cry for help would have been filled with desperation. I don't know if you've ever been in a pool or maybe a river, perhaps an ocean, where someone is beginning to drown. And so what do they do? Well, they lift up their voices. And let me tell you, it's not polite. It's not careful. It's it's not faint. No, it's littered with urgency. And such is the case here. As all of a sudden, this, this miracle-working preacher, this, this one whom they had heard so much about has come to town and maybe, just maybe, he could be the one to set us free from the prison of leprosy. And it's at this point in the narrative that the proverbial camera will pan from the lepers in distress to the Savior in control. And so we move now, secondly, from the unlikely encounter to the unlikely healing in verse 14. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. When he saw them, It's just a brief editorial footnote added into this narrative and certainly I don't want to make more of it than the text would allow, but I can't help but think that Luke inserts this phrase into his gospel record purposefully and strategically as but one more evidence to Christ and his overwhelming willingness to save. Now, why do I say that? Because if you're a leper wandering around the ancient Middle East at this time, well, then being seen And especially being seen by someone as important as Jesus, guys, that was not a part of your normal experience at all. No, if you're a leper and just by happenstance on one particular day, you manage to get close enough to civilization for you to see them and them to see you, well, then you want to know what the normal human reaction would have been? It would have been disgust. Or at the very least, it would have been indifference. Listen, nobody paid attention to lepers and certainly not the religious elite like Jesus. And really the closest parallel that we have in our culture to an interaction like this one would be the moment spent waiting at the traffic light while the homeless or the hurting stand but feet ahead. And often, at least if you're anything like me, when put in those scenarios, we elect to bury our heads in our phones or to gaze off in the other direction or maybe to take inventory of our middle console. And why is that? Well, because we know that if we see that person and in turn they see us, well, then our conscience is going to move us to show that individual mercy in some way, right? But to do so, it would be uncomfortable, it would be unproductive, maybe even depending on the scenario, it would be dangerous. And so what do we do? Well, again, all too often, we take the easy way out by simply pretending as if they don't exist at all. And guys, let me tell you, these 10 lepers would have been well conditioned to that response. They would have been well conditioned to the blind eye, the turned cheek, and the cold shoulder, but not so with Jesus. Jesus enters this village, he takes notice of their condition, and in love, he moves towards them in action. And let me just say this, this is our Savior. A Savior who is not disgusted by the mess of sin in our lives, a Savior 
who does not deal with people like us at arm's length or when we've sufficiently cleaned up our lives. No, but a Savior who sees the most unpresentable among us and yet still longs to save us. Isn't that good news? And listen, if you're in Christ here tonight, well, then let me just remind you that spiritually speaking, such was you at one point in time. And if you're not in Christ tonight, well, then such is you tonight. A spiritual leper, as it were, with, with nothing in and of yourself because of your sin to endear yourself to Christ, with nothing that would warrant or justify the attention of the Savior. And yet it was in that state, listen, that Jesus saw you. He saw the sin, he saw the rebellion, he saw all of the mess, and yet still his heart was for you. And so friend, if you're here tonight and you do not know Christ savingly, then you need to know this much. Jesus is not disgusted by you. You need to know that your track record of sin, no matter what that sin might look like, has not disqualified you from God's mercy. No, Jesus has come to seek and to save the what? Somebody, the lost, right? Not the perfect, not the behaved, not the deserving, but the lost. That's who Jesus came to save. And so he sees these lepers. He sees them as they are. And now here comes the miracle. Look back with me to verse 14. When he saw them, he said to them, go, and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. This is a rather strange miracle, all things considered. And it's strange in this sense. Typically when Jesus healed in the gospels, he healed instantaneously, didn't he? Right? He, he healed on the spot, he healed on command, and so there was no waiting, there was no delay, there was no watch and see. But of course that's not the case here. Here Jesus gives these lepers a command, and I believe wrapped within that command is a promise. A promise that, that if the command is obeyed, well then at some point, and we're not sure when, but at some point on their journey from the village to the priest, they would be healed, and they were. Now let's go back. Why does Jesus send these guys to the priest in the first place? Like, what's the deal with that? Right? Like, why doesn't Jesus just like zap these guys right then and there and then send them on their merry way? Well, the reason for that is found way back in Leviticus chapter 14. And there in Leviticus chapter 14, God, through Moses, gives the nation of Israel a protocol for the leper's re-entry into society. And so before that re-entry could take place, once again, just as a protection for the nation, the supposed ex-leper would undergo, catch this, an eight-day inspection so as to leave no doubt that they were in fact leprosy-free. And so with that, why does Jesus send these guys to the priest? Well, I believe there's two primary reasons. Number one, Jesus does so to uphold and exalt the Old Testament law, which by the way, he did consistently all throughout his ministry. And number two, he does so to provide these lepers an opportunity to express their faith in Christ to uphold the Levitical law and to provide these lepers an opportunity to express their faith. And what happens? Well, as we've said already, at some point, we're not told when, at some point, all 10 lepers are what? What does your Bible say? They were cleansed, and I love that word. 
They were cleansed. This is a word which pictures complete and total wellness. They were literally good as new. And now here's the question. How will they respond? How would you respond? Well, let's find out. We go now, thirdly, from the unlikely healing to the unlikely response. Verse 15. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Well, up to this point in our story, all 10 lepers have acted in unison, haven't they? In verse 12, we're told that all 10 lepers met with Jesus at a distance. In verse 13, we're told that all 10 lepers lifted up their voices for healing. And then in verse 14, as we just saw, all 10 lepers were completely and miraculously cleansed. But then comes verse 15. And all of a sudden, in a moment, the harmony that exists between this group is shattered when one leper turns back and he does three things. He does three things. Firstly, and you can see each of these in the text. Firstly, he begins praising God with a loud voice. And this phrase, loud voice, is a favorite of Luke's all throughout his gospel. And the way he uses it is as an instrument to convey emotion. And really what Luke wants us to know by interjecting this phrase, loud voice, is that this man's praise was anything but measured. In other words, this is not the the lip syncing that occurs in so many worship services today. This is not the, the mindless babble back to God as one's mind wanders off. No, this is a specific and impassioned worship unto God. This man praised the Lord with a loud voice. And there's a second thing that he does. Not only does he praise God first, but secondly, he falls on his face at Jesus' feet. He falls on his face at Jesus' feet, and this is a posture of worship, number one, and it's also a posture of repentance. And we see both of these modeled all throughout the scriptures. And so first, it's a posture of worship. In fact, it should be noted that nowhere in the Bible is somebody bowed before and that person is not instantaneously corrected except when the person who is bowed before is God himself. Now, why is that significant? Well, because here in verse 16, Jesus receives this leper's posture of praise and in so doing, don't miss this, he testifies to his deity. Jesus is God in the flesh, and here in this passage, he proves to be God by receiving this leper's praise. And so first, it's a posture of worship, but secondly, it's also a posture of repentance. And it's a posture of repentance in that to bow before another necessitates that the one to whom you bow is not your equal, right? Right, let's take notice of the fact that this leper doesn't strut into the presence of Jesus, amen? Right, like this is not Jesus is my homeboy theology. This is not Jesus who's getting healed next or Jesus who's getting fed next or Jesus who's getting wowed next, which is to say, this is not Jesus, the circus show that this leper meets. No, this is Jesus, the Lord, because that's the real Jesus. 
And upon coming into such close proximity with the real Jesus, what does this leper do? Well, he bows. Why? Because he recognizes his unworthiness to be there. Let me say it like this, because he sees his sin in light of Jesus' perfection, and so he bows. He bows in worship, and he bows in repentance. And then thirdly, there in verse 16, he gives thanks. He praises, he bows, and he gives thanks. And this is but one more expression of what's going on in this man's heart. This leper sees himself, as all true Christians do, as an undeserving recipient of God's amazing grace. And he he sees himself as one who has been shown an incredible amount of mercy, and so he just can't contain himself. He must thank Jesus for who he is and what he's done. And just in case there wasn't, there wasn't enough drama in this narrative already, well then there at the end of verse 16, Luke will divulge what is really a rather provocative detail about this man. And that detail was this man's status as a Samaritan. My friends, if this were a movie, then this would be the scene where you cue up the dramatic special effects. Now he was a Samaritan, bom, bom, bom. This was shocking, a Samaritan. First a leper and now a Samaritan. This is what would have been going through the original readers' minds. What in the world is Jesus doing healing a leprous Samaritan? Now let me fill in for you some of that cultural bias. To be a Samaritan, according to the Jews, was to be a walking, talking billboard of unfaithfulness. Reason being because the Samaritans were those who really in disregard of God's command had intermingled and intermarried uh, with the pagan nations around them. And so according to the Israelites, they were half-bloods. They were half-Jew and and they were half-pagan. Therefore, they were unfit to be associated with the people of God. And this was, of course, the popular sentiment of the day. Which is why, if you remember in John chapter four, the woman at the well will tell Jesus that it was not fitting for a Jew like him to associate with a Samaritan like her. Do you remember that? Because Jews and Samaritans have no dealings with one another. But now let me ask you this question. Is that how God thinks? Is that God's disposition towards an entire people group? And what's the obvious answer? Absolutely not. No, Jesus, as displayed here powerfully by his actions, could care less about what this man's birth certificate says. He could care less about this man's cultural or geographical identity. No, you know what Jesus cares about most? He cares about this man's soul. And he cares about his eternal, ongoing destiny. And so what does he do? Well, in his sovereignty, he saves the most unlikely man in the village, a pitiful, leprous Samaritan, as an example that God's saving grace plays no favorites. And friends, let it be known in just the same way in this place that in the year 2023, just as much as then, that God's saving grace plays no favorites. Praise be to God. Now, there is one prerequisite and one prerequisite alone that makes you savable. And you want to know what it is? It's not your income. It's not your education. It's not your moral background. It's, it's not your religious association. It's not your kindness or your morals or your generosity. No, it's an awareness of your great sinfulness and yet Jesus' greater mercy. 
It's an awareness of your need for a savior and that that savior is Jesus. Guys, those are the men and those are the women whom God delights to save from the king of Nineveh to the leper of Samaria and maybe even you tonight. God saves those who can't save themselves. Well, as of now, we've heard from the leper and we've witnessed this man's response to Jesus. But here now in verse 17, we get to hear from the man himself. We get to hear from Jesus. We get to hear Jesus' response to the one and Jesus' response to the nine. And so let's keep reading together. Verse 17, then Jesus answered, we're not 10 cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Well, in due time, Jesus will get to the confession of the one, but before he does so, he's first going to verbalize his sheer amazement at the utter indifference of the nine. And he'll verbalize that indifference, or or rather that amazement, Jesus' amazement, as we just read, by asking a series of rhetorical questions. Now, these are not questions asked out of curiosity or ignorance. Jesus knows everything. They're questions asked out of shock. Where are these guys is the attitude. And of course, physically speaking, Jesus knew fully well where they were, just like Jesus knew fully well where Nathaniel was, even when not fully present. And so the concern is not with the location of their feet, but with the location of their heart. They should be here. That's what Jesus is saying. Were not 10 cleansed? They were. Where are the nine? Gone. Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner true? And why was that? What was the the overarching reason looming behind the stunning ingratitude of the nine? Well, here's our answer, and this is so important. Because upon being healed, the nine, and I want you to hear this, the nine, upon being healed, had no further need for Jesus. Meaning that for the nine, and this is so crucial, Jesus was simply the means to an end, but not the end himself. And as a result, upon getting what they needed from Jesus, this group was gone. Their association with Jesus was in word only but not in truth. And now it's at this point in our time together that I believe we would do well and I think it's necessary for us to at least ask the question, for us to consider the question whether or not we, like the one, have come to Jesus for Jesus or whether or not we, like the nine, have come to Jesus for something else whether or not we've come to Jesus because we're a conservative and to be a conservative is to be a Christian. 
whether or not we've come to Jesus in order to avoid cultural awkwardness because after all, everyone in my life is a Christian and so I might as well identify as one too. Whether or not we've come to Jesus in order to avoid hell or to appease someone we're dating or maybe to reap some sort of social benefit from it. And listen, I don't know what that might look like for you, but what I do know is that if our faith is not rooted in a theology where the supreme treasure of this life and the next is the person of Jesus, then in love, I say to you tonight that we've got the wrong Jesus and we've got the wrong gospel. And maybe you're wondering, well, James, how do I determine if that's me? Like, how do I ascertain whether or not I'm the one or whether or not I'm the nine? Well, to that point, uh, I've got a couple questions that I think prove really, really helpful. So I want to pose these to you now, and I want to even challenge you to think honestly and critically about each of these as we go. And so just a couple questions. Number one, if heaven consisted of the best friends and the sweetest family, and let's just even say the tastiest food, but Jesus were not there, would it be heaven to you? Or would it be hell? Number two, if heaven consisted of the car, or the girlfriend, or the boyfriend, or all of the luxuries, or all of the pleasures, all of the golf, all of the indulgences of this life to the fill, but Jesus were not there, would it be heaven to you? Or would it be hell? And then finally, number three, if heaven consisted of all of the rest, all of the peace and all of the serenity that the most expensive, all-inclusive vacation could offer, but Jesus were not there. The question is this, would it be heaven to you or would it be hell? Those are uncomfortable questions because they're questions that get at the center of our affections, don't they? They're questions which reveal what we truly love and in that what the Bible says we truly worship. And here in this story in Luke chapter 17, we have been given a picture of both what it looks like to come to Jesus for something other than Jesus, the negative example, as well as what it looks like to come to Jesus for Jesus, the positive example. And guys, all of that has been leading us now to verse 19. And here now in verse 19, what Jesus is about to tell us is what results, and this is so important, what results from coming to him for him. Let's finish right here. And he, he being Jesus, said to him, to the leper, rise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Amazing, amazing friends, here is a second and this time far more miraculous miracle. Here is the miracle of salvation. Here is the miracle of one unworthy, one more unworthy sinner being justified, or we could just say it like this, being made righteous in the sight of God. And to be honest with you, this salvation is far clearer in the original language. Not quite sure why, but the the ESV translation, which is the translation I'm preaching from, has decided to translate that last phrase like this, your faith has made you well. But that's really not what Jesus is saying. Because what Jesus is saying is simply this, your faith has, and it's emphatic, saved you. It's the Greek word sozo, referring to spiritual salvation. 
And so what that tells us is that this is not merely a declaration of this man's physical health, nor is this an explanation for how he has shed his leprosy. No, this is a divine assessment of the state of his soul. A soul that has been graciously and mercifully saved by God. And how exactly did that happen? That's an important question, right? Like how exactly did this leper, this Samaritan leper of all people, come into right relation with the God of the universe? Well, one more time, look back with me to the text. And Jesus is just so incredibly clear when it comes to the mechanism that brought this man's salvation. He says this, he says, rise and go your way. Your what? Faith. Your faith has saved you. Does that surprise you? Guys, I'm not ignorant, ignorant to the fact that in a room this size, undoubtedly, there are people represented in this place who come from all over the map when it comes to your understanding of God and salvation. And with that being said, I'm not ignorant to the fact that in all likelihood, there is at least one person in this room who has been fed an unbiblical, and let me even just make that stronger, an anti-biblical understanding of salvation. And there's a million different versions of that uh, understanding of salvation, but in general, it goes like this, that salvation equals God's grace plus my good works. If you're coming out of a Roman Catholic background, then it's God's grace plus my trips to the confessional. If you're coming out of a Jehovah's Witness or Mormon background, then it's God's grace plus my external obedience to the 600 commands in the Bible. If you're coming out of a moralistic or legalistic background, whatever that might be, then it's God's grace plus uh, my spotless resume or my tithe, my perfect family, my church involvement, and listen, it's a lie. It's a lie from Satan himself who is attempting to distort and distract you from God's intended means of salvation. And what is that intended means? Well, it's clear as day in this passage and it's simple faith. And you say, well, James, surely there's gotta be more to it than just that, right? We're talking about right standing with God. Surely there's, there's gotta be donations to be given and there's, there's gotta be sacrifices to be made. There's gotta be holy people to be seen and maybe then God will accept me. Friend, you can believe that, but doing so puts you at odds with Jesus who here in this passage says, not that it's your faith plus, but your faith alone that has saved you. And so with all that being said, here's the principal question tonight. And here's where things rise and fall. We've seen the leper's profession of faith. And in light of his profession of faith, we've seen Jesus' declaration of his salvation. But the question is now this, do you believe? Listen, I know there's a lot of people in this room But right now I'm speaking personally to you, whoever you might be, however you got here, whatever God's doing in your heart right now, do you believe? Do you believe what the Bible says about you, that you are a sinner in dire need of grace and that Jesus has provided that grace in full through his perfect life, his sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection? I ask one more time, do you believe that? If you do, 
And if even right now, in the quietness of your own heart, you have, well then here's the greatest news in all the world. Jesus declares over you tonight the exact same thing as this healed leper. Here's Jesus' statement to you. Rise and go your way. Your faith has saved you. Guys, the door to salvation is flung wide open tonight. The Savior is calling you to come. Will you come? And in coming, may you find in Jesus what your heart will always long for apart from Christ.